So I'm Dr. Anthony Silvestro. Good to meet you, if I haven't met you yet. So I'm a practicing dentist in Middleburg Heights, Ohio, although I practice very little now. I do mostly speaking and, and preaching on Sunday mornings in different parts of the country. One of my favorite topics is evangelism. I believe it's a call that we are all supposed to have, and uh, it's not just my belief, but Scripture says that over and over and over again. And so it's my pleasure to be able to talk about evangelism more this morning with you. So on that, let's open up in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for gathering us together today. Lord, thank you for giving us a country that is still free for us to roam in, to meet on Sunday mornings in your day, Lord, in, in, out in the open versus other countries where they have to hide in the middle of the night and do this on hilltops, watching to see if government country that's free and the ability to roam I ask you to give us that fire in our, in our hearts to go out and evangelize. Lord, today I ask you to guard my words, my speech, my thought, and that's, uh, that everything is a view that comes out of my mouth. Similarly, I ask that you open the ears and minds of everyone in here to hear your word and to have a better understanding of evangelism and apologetics as we walk through this. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, as Pastor Mark had said, this is going to build off of some of the talks that we have done three years ago. We're going to repeat just a few of those things and then just launch off from there. So the first thing is, is what is apologetics? Now, is it us apologizing for the faith? Because it seems like that's what we have to do as Christians today, isn't it? Right? We have a world that doesn't like us. We have a world that every false religion is against us as being us being the one true religion. And so we've got quite the battle on our hands, don't we? God has given us quite the ministry of reconciliation. And so, no, we're not apologizing for our faith. What this word actually means, it comes from 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, notice there's a word in there that says always. Does that mean we're sometimes to be ready? No, always. This could be at the Christmas dinner table with unsafe family members and friends. This could be at the grocery store. This could be when you're walking through the park. We have a command to always be ready. There's another word in here. It's the word always. Apology or apologia, depending on how you pronounce it. This isn't an apology. This is a defense. This is what a criminal defense attorney would give for their clients. We're defending the faith. This is what we're called to do. And of course, at the end here, it says, with meekness and fear, gentleness, respect, other translations say. So do we have the one only true right religion? Yes. The one true God? Yes. Does that mean we are to be arrogant about it? No. We recognize our humble beginnings as a sinner who is lost, who is an enemy of God, who God flicked that light switch in us. The same switch that he flicked on at the beginning of creation is the one he did in you when he changed your heart of stone to heart of flesh. You were an enemy of God and now turned into a family member of God. Every unbeliever we walk across is an enemy of God. And so we have to have that compassion on them the way somebody showed to us one day 
when we were still yet sinners. So quiz time. Blank is the power of God unto salvation. A, is it my intelligence? Not that. My good looks? Definitely not that one. How about my ability to give good evidences? Is that the power of God unto salvation? We've got all kinds of books out there, Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell and others, that all these, you know, that uh, evidence demand a verdict. What about my ability to answer all of their questions? How about apologetics in general? Oh, so you guys are astute, or, or you listened to Pastor Mark's prayer earlier today. In Romans 1.16, it's the gospel is the power of God and salvation. Now, why do I bring this up? Because how many of you think evangelism might be hard or a little intimidated by it? So about half of you have your hands up, about half of you are lying to me right now. <laughs> Repent. <laughs> Just kidding. No, look, evangelism isn't easy for anybody to do. Ray Comfort, a good friend of mine, who is probably the most well-known evangelist in this country today, says that the first tract is his hardest one to give out every week. That every Saturday morning he's terrified to go out and evangelize on Huntington Beach's boardwalk. This is Ray Comfort, right? You watch him on video and he looks so easy and comfortable doing this. And yet, even he is nervous. So this is a natural feeling that we get. So we talk about this because this is our starting point. It's the gospel. We recognize the gospel has the power. What is that gospel? 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4 gives it to us. Paul, in the beginning of this chapter, is reminding the brothers of the gospel he preached to them. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised in the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel message. This is the message by which we were saved. This is the message by which others will be saved. And guess what does all the work in saving people? The Holy Spirit using his word. Holy Spirit changes hearts, and it's the gospel proclamation that we do that the Holy Spirit uses. Our responsibility in evangelism? Preach the word. And so I say all this because what then is the goal of apologetics? is the goal for us to get into those what I call apologetic sword fights. We trade barbs with one another. Because oftentimes, you look at, you look at online apologetics guys, and all they're doing is, is trading apologetics back and forth, getting in some really fantastic arguments. And you know what? The Christian, if they know what they're doing, wins every time. Because we have the truth. The problem is, is if you just get into a sword fight and walk away winning the argument, did you actually accomplish what you're called to accomplish? The goal of apologetics is not necessarily to get into these apologetic sword fights. It is to use apologetics minimally. Our goal for apologetics is that bridge from the starting point to getting to the law and the gospel as quickly as possible. So that means when we're doing our apologetics, as we learn everything in the next hour here, is that our goal always is not about winning the argument. It's about getting to the gospel as quick, quickly as we possibly can. Because that's where the power lies. It doesn't lie in us. It doesn't lie in our, in our fancy evidences that we give to people. I mean, we can have the entire Evidence Demands a Verdict book memorized. And it's not going to help somebody get saved. And so I say all this 
let's walk into the starting points of evangelism. We covered this three years ago. I want to briefly go over it again. Romans 1 is our starting point. These are four things that we know about every single person we walk up to, regardless of their background, regardless of their age, regardless of who they are. Want to know how evangelism is easy? This is how we know. Number one, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Who knows God exists according to this passage? Everybody. Wait a minute, Dr. Smith, you mean that Muslim who's a really devout Muslim knows the true God that exists deep down? Yep. You mean that atheist who swears God does not exist at all knows God exists deep down? Yep. You know, God is so confident in that that he gave, he gave us this last line here. He says, so that they're without excuse. Which means they're going to stand on Judgment Day the same way we'd have, we would have. And we're not going to be able to tell God, you know, God, if you would have just given me one more evidence, I would have believed. If you would have just told me a little bit more, then maybe I would have known you existed. He says, no, you're without excuse. You look out at creation, you know. That's powerful. That means that everybody we walk up to, do we have the burden of proof to proving them God exists? No. They already know. Our job is to expose that fact. Number two, for when Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or, or else defending them. What is written on everyone's heart? The moral law, the law of God. So that means that that person, you know, on, on cartoons that are depicted with an angel on one shoulder and devil on the other, is just a really terrible version of what the Bible teaches. That we have a conscience that tells us an absolute sense of right from wrong. And guess what the unbeliever has? That conscience. That conscience testifies to God. Another general revelation for the unbeliever. So now everybody we walk up to knows God exists, and the moral law, his moral law, is written on their heart. Testifies to God. Number three. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So when people don't profess the true God that they know exists, what are they doing with him in their heart? They're suppressing the truth about him because of why? Their sin. You know, the moral law that was written on their heart, they know God exists, they know they've broken his law, and therefore they suppress the truth about him and their sin. Which, by the way, shouldn't surprise us, because what did Adam and Eve do in the very beginning? They suppressed the truth about God by trying to hide. Guess what we do even as believers when we sin? What is our, what is our, our default position? Yeah, blame shift. It's something other than repent right away, right? We, we, have, we have this natural tendency in our sin nature. And number four, professing to be wise, it became fools and exchanged a glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man 
and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So when people don't acknowledge God, they don't profess the God they know, they suppress the truth about him instead in their sin, what do they turn to as a result? Idols. Enter every false religion or what they call lack of religion, atheism, into the picture. They pretend to believe in something else, and they may be, they may be very sincere about it, by the way, but they pretend to believe in something else as a way to help suppress the truth about the one true God. This is the state of man, which means that, number one, everybody knows God exists. Everyone knows God's moral law. The unbeliever is suppressing the truth, and the unbeliever exchanges the truth about God for a lie or idols. Good. Let's have another starting point here for us. There's two worldviews in this world, God and not God. The not-God worldview is Buddhism, Muslims, Roman Catholicism, atheism, agnosticism, and any other thing that you can throw in there. That's the not-God worldview. Way too many books out there talk about the 15 or the 20 or the 25 or the 105 worldviews that are out there. That's not true biblically. There's two. There's God and there's not God. And why is this important? Is because we as, as Christians want to, in general, believe when we're evangelizing that there's these... There's these good Christians, and then maybe some Christians that are not quite as good yet, right? And then, and then on the other side of the equation, there are really devout atheists. And then we believe that there's all these people in between that are kind of neutral. Right? Oh, that's a nice primate. That 80-year-old Catholic lady who goes to church three times a week and lights her candles twice a week is just a really nice lady. She's just kind of neutral to everything. I'm here to tell you there is no neutral ground. That 80-year-old lady who's really kind, who's a Roman Catholic, is an enemy of God. And I'm seeing some eyeballs light up right now. <laughs> but let's, let's not look at my words. Let's look at God's words. James 4.4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Just one of the numerous passages. In fact, if you want to see how God feels about running after false gods, go read the book of Hosea and see the harsh language that is in there. Now, it doesn't mean that we aren't with gentleness respect, right, when we evangelize. All I'm doing is trying to let us understand what the starting point is of the unbeliever. They know God exists, they're suppressing the truth about him and their sin, and they're hostile to the Christian worldview. Which is exactly what we see in the world today, isn't it? I'm not telling you anything you don't know. This is just the scriptural backing for it. So, as I say all these things, how should we be doing apologetics now? Because we are called to defend the faith. We are called to use it to get to the law and the gospel. How do we do this? In general, there's three types of Christian apologetics. There is what we call evidential. There's classical, which tongue-in-cheek I call philosophical plus evidential together. And presuppositional. There's books that talk about five, six different types of, of evidential, I'm sorry, apologetics methods. These are really the main three categories. 
What is evidential apologetics? Well, this is when people go out there and they appeal to evidences, usually scientific, to support the Christian faith. Right? So, oh, you're an unbeliever? Well, let me help you with that. Do you know about dinosaur bones and carbon-14 that's in them? By the way, powerful evidence. It's a great one. Or how about, uh, do you know that dinosaur bones have, have soft tissue in them if you break them open? Powerful evidence for the Christian worldview, certainly. Evidential apologetics likes to use these types of ideas. And we recognize that there is a great deal of evidence that support the Christian worldview. And there should be, right? Because God has made an entire world that shows who he is in the things that have been made, according to Romans 1. So there's a lot of great things out there for us to see and use. And recognize that, that these evidences can be useful to pull down strongholds. So when I'm on college campuses and doing a lot of, of preaching, I have people that come up to me and ask me legitimate questions about, say, Noah's Ark. How did God fit all the animals on the Ark? It's a great question to answer. We just have to recognize it doesn't prove to them that God exists. It just shows them that we have answers within our worldview. We're using apologetics to get to the gospel. Classical apologetics is very similar to evidential, except that it, it stresses rational and philosophical arguments. And so two of their main arguments I like to use are, I don't like big terms, by the way, I just throw them out here for you to know, cosmological and teleological, that they exist, these terms. Not a fan of them. But basically, they're philosophical arguments used to prove God's existence. And most of our apologists out here that are going into churches are teaching on these types of apologetics methods. William Lane Craig, Norman Geisler, Hugh Ross, and others are guys who love to use the evidences as ways to change people into Christianity according to their own words. Here's the problem with this, though. Evidential and classical apologists have the wrong starting point. See, their starting point, whenever they walk up to you, whenever you read their books, is assuming that everybody's starting on ground level as an atheist. And what their goal is now is to give you evidence, evidence, evidence. Now you might get to a point, finally, after a number of evidences, that, oh, this person now believes in a God. And that's considered half the battle. Now, the rest of it is more evidences, more evidences, more evidences, more evidences. And finally, you get to the point of a creator God, where the goal, the end point, is not the Christian God. The end point is, is that the Christian God is more likely than any other God. Want me to prove this to you? How many evidence does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? <laughs> Just kidding. How many evidences does it take to get to somebody to believe in God with 100% certainty? <laughs> yes, it is. There is no amount of evidences that convert the soul. There is no amount of evidence that gets somebody to 100% certainty in God's existence. None. You, you can't get to it. And so this is what ends up happening. We walk into these evangelism battles, apologetics battles in this way. How many of you remember Mike Tyson's Punch-Out? You know, it was a great game, right? And so this is how we feel we're doing it, right? In our evangelism, we feel like we're just giving them gut shot after gut shot, and eventually they're just going to fall over, right? And so what we hope for is that that last one is going to be the one that knocks them out, and finally they're Christians. But what do we actually end up seeing in the world? We end up actually seeing something like this. 
that they're just blocking every shot we give them. They're blocking every evidence. Why? Thank you for humoring me. It's one of my favorite old games. <clears throat> so when we talk about comets, these are really interesting. One of the greatest proofs for young Earth creation, one of the greatest proofs for God's creation in general, and it goes like this. Comets, if you know what they are, they're just a big ball of ice and dust. And that comet is trapped by the sun in, in its gravitational field, and it just goes around the sun in these really long elliptical orbits, much larger than any of our planets. And when that comet starts to come around the sun, it starts to get towards that heat, it burns off some of that ice and dust, so we get to see the pretty tail of comets as they come around the sun. And every time that comet comes around the sun and goes back out in the far reaches of outer space that we can't see anymore, it loses some of its mass. And every time that comet comes around, it loses more mass before at some point that comet just blows up and explodes and goes away. This happened very recently, about five years ago with a comet. It was coming around around Thanksgiving time, if you remember. A lot of us amateur astronomers are waiting for it because it's best to see a comet right after it comes around the sun and back away from it, and it had blown up. So none of us got to see it. Which means then that comets have to have a finite lifespan, doesn't it? And we've calculated even the largest of comets shouldn't last more than about 100,000 years. Which means that if this world, if this universe is billions of years old, according to the secular astronomers, secular scientists, no more comets should be left. They should have been long gone. Why do we still have comets? We can bring this up to the, the scientists and say, look, obviously you guys are wrong. We've got comets, and therefore this, this world isn't billions of years old. Till a Dr. Oort came around. Dr. Oort, you may have heard of this, created what's called the Oort cloud. He says, somewhere way out there, somewhere we can't detect, too far to detect, too far to see, is this cloud that has an unending supply of comets. And then for some unknown reason, it kicks out a comet from its cloud, gets trapped by the sun's gravitational field, and now it's pulled into orbit. And that's why we still have comets today. I kid you not, go look it up. Dr. Oort, O-O-R-T. What happened? The unbeliever does everything they can to protect their worldview. They're enemies of God. They're suppressing the truth about him and their sin. They want nothing of the things of God. And so they come up with every excuse possible to block him out. You can throw every evidence at him, and it doesn't change the heart. Now, is this still a powerful evidence? Of course. It is great for us to be able to show him, look, we have answers for comets. That is actually a real answer. Yours is faith. <laughs> faith and atheism. Uh, look, look, it's, I'm so tired of this argument, right? Well, you guys believe in faith and we believe in science. Really? Really? You have no mechanism for evolution whatsoever. You pretend you do with all these fancy terms. You have zero observational evidence, yet you have millions of books written on it. Really? <laughs> they don't want to find it. That's right, because they're suppressing the truth about him and their sin, right? That's the whole point of this. That's what we have to understand as we're evangelizing. And so, in the end, evidential and classical apologists, I don't believe is the right biblical method for us, because it starts with our reasoning and their reasoning, and just trading scientific facts to try to get to this God's existence, when 
when guess what? The Bible never attempts to prove the existence of God. Why? Because it just assumes it from the very beginning. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19, Romans 1, God. Here's all the evidence for God. Creation. There is no proving God. He's there. And we all know it. So what is a better method? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. I'm going to tell you something scary about evidential and classical apologists when we take it to their far-reaching conclusions. Sean McDowell is considered the number one youth apologist in the world today for Christianity. Josh McDowell's son. Now, some of you may have remembered this, but there was a Christian band a few years ago where the drummer renounced his faith and, and left. And then two or three weeks later, a blog appeared by Sean McDowell, and he says this. In their book, Sticky Faith, Kara Powell and Chap Clark show that young people do not often abandon their faith solely because of doubt. Rather, it is unexpressed doubt that is corrosive to faith. Believe it or not, but I still have some doubts today. I am not certain Christianity is true. I am confident, but not certain. My doubts drive me to find answers and also to rest in God's grace. Sean McDowell, number one youth apologist in the world today, is not 100% confident in God's existence. But again, why should he be? If he believes that, this, that God is just a summation of evidences and arguments, why should he be 100% confident in God? The number one Christian apologist in the world today for everybody is a guy named William Lane Craig, who I didn't play the video today because of, of sound and, and everything, but I have a video clip of him where he is asked by an atheist in a national televised debate, it's about 10 years ago, are you 100% certain God exists? And guess what William Lane Craig's answer was? No, no for everyone to see. If you want a clip of that, by the way, email me. I'll send you that clip. Top apologists do not have 100% certainty in God. I don't know about you, but this is embarrassing to me. As an apologist, as an evangelist, as a Christian, this is embarrassing. They don't believe what the Bible actually says in Romans 1, do they? Maybe evangelism is a little bit easier if we understand what the Bible says. And so instead, we, I teach something called presuppositional apologetics. This is the method that the Bible teaches. This is the method that Jesus and Paul used as you, as you read through the Gospels and book of Acts. It's the biblical method of defending the faith. It is, it is the understanding that there's this conflict between two opposing worldviews, God and not God. God and the ones who suppress the truth about him. And so therefore, in in presuppositional apologetics, in our proper apologetics method, we don't start pretending everybody's an atheist. We start with what the, God, with what the Bible says in that creator God exists. The God of the Bible, everybody knows. And because everybody knows it, everybody's a theist, automatically. Even the atheist is a theist. <laughs> That's right. And so our job now is to do what the Bible calls us to do, which is, Call them to repentance and believe the gospel.
right? I mean, I don't know about you, but this seems to be the biblical method. We go out and give God's word. Let God's word do the work it's called to do. Because after all, we look at, we look at the armor of God. Six pieces of armor, five are defensive, one's offensive. What is that? God's word, the sword. His word is the one that does the work. Let's go further. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. Does that mean that equips the Bible alone equips the evangelist to evangelize? Is it sufficient? Yes. The Bible is sufficient for evangelism. The Bible is sufficient for apologetics. The Bible is what we use. Sorry, I know a lot of you have all kinds of books on your bookshelf from Lee Strobel and Joshua Dowell <laughs> and others. And I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just saying that the reason why you have them on your bookshelves is because you're Christians and you love the evidences that show God, that point to God. You love to read that stuff. And I do too. I love those books. I'm just saying the unbeliever doesn't see them the same way you do. And that God's prescription is not giving evidences. His prescription is giving his word and getting to the gospel. Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so as we conclude this, what I really enjoy about precept apologetics, and now as we get into the objections that we wanted to talk about today, sorry, MacArthur has really, really long introductions. Mine is only about half the size of what his normally are. So <laughs> the great thing is, is that we as Christians don't need to be PhD scientists to go and evangelize. We can go up to a PhD scientist and evangelize with the best of them because we have something more powerful, God's word and God's gospel. This should be a breath of fresh air and a relief for every one of us in our evangelism encounters because we rely upon God's word to do the work. So now I, I have to say this. Is evidences bad? Like, is using them bad? No, not at all. We just have to recognize they don't change the heart of the unbeliever. The Holy Spirit does through, the, through his preached word. But yet, evidences can be used to break down strongholds. When I'm on college campuses, there are people, like I said earlier, who have legitimate questions about the Christian worldview. Give them an answer, please. <laughs> Show them how we have answers in our worldview for everything they see. Whether they accept it or not is a different story. Show them we have answers and get to the law and the gospel which has the power of God and salvation. And the main key is that we never use evidences to prove to them God exists. Because God has already done that in his creation. That is not our responsibility. It is not our job. 
And so the strategy for the apologists as we go forward is that the unbelievers' opposition is against the entire Christian worldview. They don't care about the evidences. In the end, that's not their battle. Their battle is their sin against a holy God they know they're going to face. And that the unbeliever, again, is suppressing the truth about him and their sin. They're protecting the worldview, so we use God's word. Everyone knows God exists. Everyone knows God's moral law. The unbeliever is suppressing the truth. An unbeliever exchanges the truth about God for a lie or idols. The what is the power of God of salvation? Gospel. And scripture is sufficient, or the sword, for evangelism. Good. This is our basis for evangelism. This is our basis now as we walk into the challenges here for the rest of, of my time. So the first set of challenges we're going to run into, what about the false convert that we talked to? This is probably a common one for a lot of us. What about the Bible is untrustworthy? Get that one a lot, don't we? How about how to get to the gospel? I mean, Dr. Sylvester, you say he gets along to the gospel. How do we actually do it? Well, we're going to talk about that. How about, I don't believe that Jesus is God? Common among a number of the cults out there and others. What about the person that grew up on a remote island? Yeah, everybody has heard that one billions of times. I've got a really quick and easy way to answer that one. Why is the Bible the correct holy book? Right, we've got the Quran, we've got Bhagavad Gita, we've got all kinds of whacked out books. So, why is it the Bible? The false converts. Let's talk about this. So, how do we help someone who thinks they are saved, but whose lifestyle doesn't match up to this? Maybe whose lifestyle doesn't indicate that they're actually a believer, right? Because we'll know them by their fruits. And so, maybe they aren't, maybe they're forsaking the assembly. They're not going to a local church on a regular basis, they're not part of a local assembly. Maybe they're living in sin, unrepentant sin. So how do, we, how do we speak to them? First question I always ask, what is the gospel? Ask them. See if they know. It's a great starting point. You will find more often than not, the false convert does not, cannot give you the gospel. So walk through it with them. Take your time going through the gospel with them. The next thing I do, if they are somebody who seems to understand the gospel, or if I've just given it to them now, I go to Ezekiel 36. How many of you are familiar with this passage in Ezekiel 36, starting verse 24? It's a great passage to write down and look up. It is, it is the passage that says, And I will place their heart of stone with the heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within them. And I, and I, and I. Like 20-some times God says, I will do this. It talks about, in its, in its context, Israel... But it also has an application to the individual unbeliever coming to belief. God does all the work in salvation. And so we can talk to them about Ezekiel 36 and say, look, there's a heart change that is to occur. That means that, that the sin that you love or once loved, you should now hate. It doesn't mean we stop sinning altogether, but what it does mean is that when we look at somebody's life, we should see a sanctification going on. We should see them sinning less. We should see a complete heart and mind change against what sin actually is, where one, it's not just a mistake, it's an affront against a holy, righteous, and just judge. It's a proper understanding of what sin is and who God is. 
that's the next thing we do. And then oftentimes, the challenge we get is, oh, so you mean that, um, that we can just sin willy-nilly? How many of you heard this one, right? I just heard this the other day. I, I love what's called hot tub evangelism. Anytime I sit in a hot, I, I go to a hotel, I sit in a hot tub for literally a few hours. And everybody that comes in, I get into a conversation with. <laughs> seems self-serving, I know. But <laughs> you have no idea how easy it is to get in a conversation in a hot tub with somebody. <laughs> So, so you start evangelizing, and, and sure enough, last week, or actually just a couple days ago it was, we were in Columbus for a night, that, that somebody overheard me talking with somebody else who I just got done witnessing to and said, you know, I, the problem I have with Christianity is, you know, there's people that just, they just do whatever they want all week and they show up in church on Sunday and think they're okay. To which I say, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, because the greatest, evangel- the greatest uh, uh, gospel book ever written is the book of Romans, in my opinion. And Paul lays out the gospel message beautifully. Not only does he do that, he also anticipates a number of challenges that may come up. You know what those challenges are? He just gets done at the end of Romans 5, talking about how, how when we recognize our sin as believers, the more we grow in our sanctification, the more we recognize our sin, the more we recognize it's an affront against God, but the more we recognize God's grace abounding on us, which is a wonderful gift as Christians, isn't it? And then in Romans 6, he anticipates the next question, which is, so does that mean that since grace abounds more, I should just keep on sinning? May it never be. By no means, right, is what we see written in there. And this is exactly what we do to that person who brings up this objection. This is what the Bible says. The person who is just willy-nilly sinning all week and showing up at church on Sunday is probably not a believer, is probably a false convert. By the way, unbeliever, that's not the person you're supposed to be looking at for your role model. It's Christ and his perfection that you're supposed to be looking at. You want to understand what a Christian's supposed to be doing? Look at who Christ is. Oh, by the way, let me tell you about him some more. And that's how we walk into this. Okay, the Bible is untrustworthy. I know, I know we've all heard this at different times. So how do we respond to somebody who has, who has this question? Number one, recognize there is almost always something behind this question. Almost always, it is somebody who hates God. I, according to the Bible, they all hate God if they're an unbeliever, right? But they really have something against God. And so when somebody brings up this objection, remember their starting point. And so the question I like to ask him, what's untrustworthy about it? Name just one thing for me that is untrustworthy. And guess what nobody has ever been able to do every time I've asked that question? Is answer it. Oh, sometimes they say that. We'll get to that here a little bit. That's a, that's a great one. Sometimes they do say it's just written by man. Well, let me just say it right now. If somebody tells you it's written by man, I ask him, do you not believe anything written by man? I mean, you read a newspaper, you read textbooks, you read all kinds of things. So, oh, so that actually, so that, that means that being written down by man isn't actually the way you're supposed to be judging whether something's true or not, is it? And you say, well, let me tell you about the Bible. God wrote it through man, so it was written down exactly the way God anticipated it to be penned. You want to know where to go? Let's go read Peter together. Very simple for us to, to walk through that. Again, most questions asked by the unbeliever 
they don't actually want answers to, or not actually seeking answers to. They're trying to protect their worldview. This is how we have to always view these encounters. So I ask what's, in, what's untrustworthy. I challenge him, ask him to name one thing. To which they can't do it, so what do I do? I get to the gospel. Go right to it. And so if you haven't watched or listened to the, the talks from three years ago, go listen to those as to how we walk through to get to the gospel using the law. Ray Comfort has a lot of great videos on this as well. But our job then is to get to the gospel. So, so now it leads us into the next question. How do we make sure we get to the heart of the gospel? Right? We're in a conversation. How do we get to it? Because our job as evangelists, as God's, as God's ambassadors, right? we are ambassadors for Christ. We have a ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 through 21. How do we get to the gospel? Is our goal is to get to the gospel as quickly as possible. And so this is how I usually address this. When I have somebody that asks me a question, whether it's the Bible is written, don't you think the Bible is just written by man? Or what about dinosaurs? Or, you know, fill in the blank. I will answer two to three questions at most. Because what I never want to get into is there's a lot of people who will just stay there and, and there's literally spawns of Satan. They stand there and they ask question after question after question. Before you know it, you've blown in an hour and a half when you could have witnessed all kinds of other people. And so what I do instead is I'll answer two to three questions and then I'll get to the law and the gospel. What I typically will do is after the first question, when I answer it, I will say that I'll say something like, you know what, I am happy to stand here and answer all of your questions. But after, after one or two more, I would like you to answer one of my questions. Right? So you're being very friendly. You're kind of setting the stage right off the bat. They'll ask a couple more questions. You'll answer them. They'll say, okay, now I've got a question for you. Where do you believe you will go when you die, heaven or hell? Really simple question that turns the tables. And I'll tell you that when you ask this question to people, they almost always will answer it, regardless of their background. This is one of those questions everybody thinks about. Even the heart, most hardened of atheists, when you ask this question, will answer you. Even they're not supposed to believe in one. And sometimes they'll tell you, you know, well, I don't believe in heaven or hell. Okay, let's just humor me then for a moment, heaven or hell. And let them, let, let, let them go answer you. And then you walk into the law and the gospel. Okay, what about when an unbeliever is persistent? What about when somebody is just pressing you with questions? Sometimes you run into that unbeliever who is just who won't even let you get a word in edgewise. I've had this happen numerous times where they ask a question, I'm halfway through answering it, and then they interrupt me and ask the next one. Eventually, this is what I ask. How is that going to help you on Judgment Day? How is that going to help you on Judgment Day? How is that going to help you on Judgment Day? Over and over and over again trying to get back to the heart of the matter. See, when we ask questions, eventually they're going to answer. Because let's face it, what do we all like to do? Do we rather hear somebody else talk or we rather talk ourselves? Right? I mean, if you look up dating book, which I don't believe in dating, I believe in courting, but if you look up the books, they say that if you want to win somebody over, close your mouth and let them talk to you. Right? It's true. <laughs> when we talk about this, 
we ask questions as the evangelist, let them answer. And we can turn the tables in those conversations and get them to talk to us. We can get them to answer questions that they love to answer. Even if they don't answer the way we want them to, it doesn't matter. We've now controlled the conversation when we're asking those questions. And it's very easy to go from, what do you think happens when you die, heaven or hell, to, well, how do you think that you're going to get to heaven? What do you think it takes? How good do you have to be? Oh, by the way, here's a good person test that we can walk through together to see how good you actually are. Have you ever told a lie before? Have you ever stolen anything? I mean, watch Ray Comfort do it. He's a master at it. And if you look at him, he's about this tall. His hair is about this high. And, and he's got this Kiwi voice, and yet he can get the most hardened people to talk to him because he just is sincere and asks questions, which is what we're called to do, and constantly points them to Scripture. He calls himself Kiwi, by the way, so it's okay if I do that. <laughs> so how are your sins going to be paid for when you die? Right? Another great question to ask. So pop quiz. What if an unbeliever loves God and has sincere beliefs about his religion? I mean, look, after all, that Buddhist is really sincere. I mean, he's praying multiple times a day. The Muslim, I mean, he's a really sincere one because he's laying out his, his magic carpet and he's kneeling out and praying towards Mecca five times a day. I mean, what about, what about them? Where do you think they're going to go? I mean, maybe they just, don't, they just don't know any better. How do we answer that? They do know better. They know God. That's right. And so what is our job to do? Expose the fact that they know through evangelism. What about I don't believe Jesus is God? We hear this a lot, not just from the Christian cults, but we also hear it from other unbelievers. So the thing I like to do is explain the necessity of the hypostatic union. Why must Jesus be God? By the way, a great question for Jehovah's Witnesses. Why must he be the God? And explain it to him, right? That, well, Jesus, who's fully God, came down, took on flesh, became fully human as well, truly God, truly man, or fully God, fully, fully human, was both natures fully, and that he had to be fully human to pay the human sacrifice, human blood to drip, but he also had to be fully God to pay the eternal fine to God that is owed by us, meaning the hypostatic union is absolutely necessary for us to be saved. A great way to explain it to somebody, theologically, and something that just makes sense. I also love to ask the question to especially Jehovah's Witnesses, why was Jesus put on the cross by the Romans and the Jews in the first place? Why'd they put him there? See, Jehovah's Witnesses want to believe he's not actually God. They believe he's a God, a lesser God. But they don't believe he's the God. And so, I say, why? Why then was he put on the cross? Oh, it's because he claimed to be God on numerous occasions, isn't it? And you know that. You know what the scriptures teach on this. Even their, even their New World Translation, which is, a, which is a changed version of the Bible, they've changed multiple passages in it. There are still many dozens of other passages that still point to Jesus being God in there. They haven't changed them all yet. And so I love to go to John 8. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is John 8, 58 and 59. This was a reference, and the Pharisees knew it. It was a reference back to Exodus 3.14, where Jesus was claiming to be the God in the burning bush. He claimed to be I am. They know it. So we bring this up to them. We bring this up to, to other unbelievers. We see in Hebrews 1.8, But of the Son, he, this is God the Father speaking, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, of, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The Father is calling his Son God and King. Hard to get around this passage. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us, Matthew 1, 22 through 23. And this is just a few of all those passages. By the way, every single time the Pharisees picked up rocks to stone Jesus, why were they going to stone him? Because he claimed to be God, blasphemy. Ask a Jehovah's Witness that and see how quickly they back off and stop the conversation with you. This is how we walk into that. Okay, what about the person on a remote island? We have all heard this one before, many, many times. How do we answer this one? Well, we've already got the basis of this, don't we? What do we know about that islander, ourselves? They know God exists. Moral laws are in their hearts. They do what with, the, with suppress the truth about him and their sin. And when they turn from God, they turn to idols. Good. So we know that about the islander. And I have no problems telling the unbeliever that. I said, look, let me read to you Romans 1 and what it says here. And I read that passage to him, 18 to about 25, verse 18, 25, Romans 1. And I explain it really quickly, those four points. And I say, look, God is omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And by the way, God is always good. I am confident that God will always do what is right. Which means that that person on the remote island who's never heard of Jesus, I'm going to let God be God. But here's the thing, is that right now, I'm talking to you, and you've heard about Jesus. What are you going to do about it? The reality is, is this question is always a diversion tactic. It's the only reason why they ask it. And so we have to separate out these ideas. One, we're talking to you. I proclaim the gospel to you already. You aren't that person on a remote island. So don't worry about them right now. Worry about yourself. Repent. Put your trust in Christ. But then we still have a good answer for the one who is on the remote island. God's going to be God. God is good. He's going to handle it the way he needs to handle it. There's people that get saved all the, all the time in remote areas through missionaries. So why is the Bible the correct holy book? This is a big one, too. Because there's people who believe that there's equally valid holy books out there. And believe it or not, there's even a lot of professing Christians that believe this. This is the Rick Warren syndrome. And so it can also be stated as, how do we know the Bible is the ultimate authority? Right? How, how do we know the Bible is it? Well, 
What better evidence to use than the Bible? Hebrews 6.13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear an oath by no one greater, could he swear by? Himself. So you watch those crime dramas, and people are putting their hands on the Bible in court and saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. What are they doing? They're calling upon the one that's higher than all of us as their proclamation of truth. I'm going to tell the truth, and my witness is God himself. Probably not supposed to be doing that, but, but that's what happens in the court system. What God's saying is, I am the ultimate authority. Because I'm the ultimate authority, there's nothing higher than me that can prove me. Which means the only way to prove me is by me. And so he swears unto himself according to this passage. There's only one God, and everybody knows it. Scripture is God-breathed. The Bible is his word, his truth. He's a sovereign ruler over all creation. The answer for the Bible being the ultimate authority is that God says it is. First and foremost, that is our apologetic. But second, let's talk about some internal consistency because if something on the outside can't prove this, then what can we use to prove it, so to speak? Well, nothing proves the Bible. What it is is the Bible is, is self-consistent. It has internal consistency. It's the only part of the books of Josh McDowell that I really like. You can rip those pages out and, and keep those. And the best part is prophecy. I mean, how many times did Jesus say, the law and the prophets speak of me? He constantly pointed to the Old Testament to verify who he is. Guess what we ought to be doing? The exact same thing. And so I will quickly and readily point out to people, look, there's, there's a lot of unique things about our Bible. Written over 1,500 years, 66 books, over 40 different authors, three different languages, three different continents. One unified message, completely consistent message throughout. And that in this collection of books, we have 60 major messianic prophecies in the Old Testament alone. We have 270 minor prophecies in the Old Testament alone for the first coming of the Messiah. And that the odds of just Eight of those 300 plus prophecies being fulfilled is one with 17, one and one with 17 zeros after it. If just 15 of these are fulfilled, it is higher than the amount of known particles in the universe, that probability. That is astounding to think about. God gave us this as powerful testimony is to show exactly who he is. And so I love to walk up to people and have this conversation. In fact, whenever I'm, I'm in a place and I see those little Jewish caps on, I go up to them and I just open up my phone and start reading Isaiah 53. I say, excuse me, sir, can I ask you this question? Who does this sound like to you? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Who does this sound like to you? And sometimes they answer you, and will tell you, well, it sounds like Jesus of Nazareth. Sometimes their lips are buttoned, and you know why. Because they know the forbidden scroll. When you tell them, this is Isaiah 53, the one that you aren't allowed to read, 
your rabbi keeps tucked away with lots of dust sitting on it is because this is just one of many powerful testimonies in the Old Testament that point to Jesus being the Messiah. The Messiah you're still looking for came 2,000 years ago. A great one for us to use with both Jewish believers as well as, as any other unbeliever. I love using it. Used it in my hot tub evangelism the other day as well. And we can be able to say, look, 700 years prior, this was written down, this book of Isaiah. 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. About 400 years before Roman crucifixion was even invented yet. And yet, here it is written in plain English that he is exactly who he says he is and that Jesus came and fulfilled this and many, many other prophecies. I love bringing this one up. You see eyeballs light up with people when you can bring this up. Because look, the reality is, is how, how in the world can, a, can the Messiah fulfill 300 plus prophecies between 400 and 1,000 years later? So we, have, we have prophecies that start from, that are, that are in Malachi all the way back to Genesis. The only way that all these can be fulfilled in one man is if God knew the end from the beginning. This is powerful for us to be able to use. Why is the Bible the only holy book? Well, God's given it to us. It's his testimony. It's a consistent message. Well, by the way, he gives you lots of prophecy to back that up. Oh, but Dr. Silvestro, I mean, you're not allowed to use the Bible to verify the Bible, are you? Well, first of all, I'm going to say, if it's the ultimate cause or the ultimate authority, which it is, then nothing can prove it. Like I said before, so it has to be internally consistent. That would make sense. But I like to use the example of the fastest car. So, so you mean to tell me if I told you I had the fastest car in the world, but I can't prove it to you by driving it and showing you it's the fastest car, that doesn't make any sense, does it? I'm going to show you the Bible as the ultimate authority by showing you the Bible and how it's the ultimate authority. And here's the thing. Do I have to prove to somebody that the Bible is the ultimate authority? No. I'm relying on God's word to do the work. I'm just providing them answers to their skeptic beliefs. I'm showing them I have answers in my worldview, and they don't. I'm showing them that their questions and their challenges are foolish. And so that's why I'm armed with some of these things. And here's another one. Why is Christianity the only religion? Why is the Bible the only holy book? Well, this is great. I can put every religion on this planet that was ever thought of, that is currently today, or will ever be thought of in the future in one of two categories. Doing and done. Every religion that has ever existed, exists now, or will exist in the future, fits in the category of doing, that I must do things in order to gain God's righteousness. There's only one that says, uh-uh, there's no amount of good you can do to outweigh the bad. There's no amount of good you can do to get rid of the evil you've done. There's no amount of good you can do to pay the penalty that you owe to God for your sin. And that's Christianity. Christianity is the only one that says, you can't do it, therefore I had to come down from heaven to do it for you. It's God's grace that we're saved. 
a great objective test to be able to walk people into. Which then brings us up into our friendly Roman Catholics. I must say, I believe that Roman Catholicism is the most evil of all the false religions out there. And I know it sounds really harsh, because we have a lot of friends and family members who are Catholics. We have a lot of people in our neighborhoods and in this area that are Catholics. But you know, most false religions are really easy to spot. Roman Catholicism is not. Roman Catholics are taught, if you ask them how they're saved, they will readily tell you it's by the blood of Jesus. I'm saved by Christ. And if you stop there, if you don't ask another question, you're going to walk away thinking, oh, that person must be okay. Ask another question. Is there anything else you need to do to be saved? And guess what happens? It's like you open up a fire hydrant and all kinds of stuff starts coming out. Did my sacraments and I go to confession and I do this and I light my candles and, and by the way, um, I, I do a lot of good things. And, and before you know it, they have done what every other false religion does, which is mixing faith plus works. So the question I often ask to Roman Catholics is, well, when Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for sin, what percentage of it was him and what percentage of it was your works? I mean, is it like 90-20? I'm sorry, 90-10? Is it 80-20? Is it 50-50? I mean, how does that work out? And I don't do it to be tongue-in-cheek. I do it to say, look, I mean, let's, let's work through your thought process here. You either believe by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, or you, or you don't. It's one or the other. To which a Catholic will often say this, because we recognize as, as Bible-believing Christians, there is a difference between sanctification and justification. Justification is point in time you're declared not guilty. Sanctification is... That's your starting point, is declared not guilty, and now you grow in sanctification the rest of your Christian walk. And so Catholics mix up this idea of justification and, and sanctification. So what do we do? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The greatest passage for us to bring up to Roman Catholics he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, Titus 3, verses 4 through 5. To which Catholics often give this objection. James 2, right? Verse 17, verse 21. They'll say, well, faith without works is dead. Okay, Christian, how do you answer that? Well, let's walk him into the right context. Because that passage in James 2 starts in verse 14. And it says, there's a question that is being posed. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? All he's doing is posing a question of what does a true faith look like? To which now the rest of the passage says, a true faith will look like somebody who does good works as a result of their faith. It doesn't add to salvation. It's proof of it. And so that's how we walk them through this objection. I've had Catholic priests I've witnessed to and said, well, you know what? You've got Ephesians 2.10 that talks about works right after your passage in Ephesians 2, verse 8 9. I said, yeah, except read that verse carefully because it says that we're his workmanship and that he prepared those good works for us to walk in. 
after we're saved. Not that they make us saved, but that we walk in those good works. And so we've walked now through those couple of passages. Or I'm sorry, that, those couple of passages for Catholics. Now let's talk about New Age mysticism. Because I know there's a lot of that going on here. There's a lot of, going, a lot of that going on everywhere. There's a lot of Christian churches who have allowed mysticism in. Terms like, I am spiritual and believe in a higher power. I have a higher knowledge. Energy. All kinds of energy stuff. There are many ways to God. Is part of this New Age mysticism. Yoga, chakras, namaste, which is their, their greeting. Karma, this idea of law of attraction. I hear the words karma all the time, and especially out of Christians. This is not a biblical concept. We can't know anything to be true. This is the postmodern aspect that is built in. Contemplative prayer. How many churches have brought this idea in where, where we sit in church and we pray by emptying our minds and seeing what God fills it with? which is the exact opposite of Scripture, which says that we are to meditate on God's Word day and night. These are all aspects of New Age mysticism, and actually there's a whole lot more, but these are the highlights of them. By the way, New Age mysticism is nothing new. It, it's a break off of Hinduism, and off that was Buddhism, and off of that were literally thousands of different types of New Age philosophies. Every time I go to California to, to, to help at Ambassador's Academy for Ray Comfort, and we go on the boardwalk at uh, Huntington Beach, there is a new Christian cult that's popped up that acts Christian, is all New Age mystic, and has their roots in Buddhism. A lot of them are Chinese cults, by the way, and Korean. So we see this all the time. New ones are forming all the time. How do we deal with this? Witchcraft, by the way, is tied very, very close to this. The occult, Wiccans. So first and foremost, don't be afraid to use Scripture to refute anything they say. That's the power. So use Scripture, use the Gospel. In general, they believe that Jesus is not God. So let's go to our passages to talk about Jesus and who he is. I also love to ask this question because in general, New Age, Wiccans don't believe this, witchcraft people don't believe this, but in general, New Age believe that that Jesus was a good moral teacher and maybe even a prophet. They almost all will, will say that. To which I ask him the question, can good moral teachers and prophets lie? Because Jesus in John 14, 6, said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You've got a problem, New Age mystic. You say Jesus is a good moral teacher. You say he's a prophet. He's got all kinds of statements saying he's the only way. He's God. And again, we can't, we can't make them change their minds. All we're doing is giving them God's word. So we give them the gospel. A few more common objections before we end here. Some of this is a repeat. I'm going to give you a little bit extra. What's that? Yeah, that's a great one. It comes up all the time too. So first one, homosexuality. It's a sin. As Vodibachum often says, we as Christians tend to kill things with a thousand clauses. Right? Well, you know, 
my good friends are homosexual and I've got family members that are homosexual and I know all kinds of homosexual people. Before we ever get into talking about homosexuality, we're trying to soften it versus, look, what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? It says, number one, it's a sin in Leviticus, an abominable sin. In the New Testament, it says it's a sin and it's contrary to nature in Romans 1. That people know when they're doing, when they're in homosexual acts, they know it's against nature. I go to homosexual parades a lot and preach, and when I get to a chance to talk to homosexuals one-on-one or one-on-two, they almost all will acknowledge this when we're in a good conversation. And a lot of them, by the way, are molested as youngsters. Despite what they try to tell you that's not true, it is very true. And any evangelist you talk to sees this. We recognize also marriages between one man and one woman. Matthew 19, Jesus, when he's asked about divorce and remarriage, he points to what marriage is, what it was defined as biblically, and he goes back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to define marriage. Again, that was three years ago. You can learn about that more. So what I like to do when I talk to somebody who's homosexual is I say, look, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and in chapter 6, he talks about, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Every one of us fits into that long laundry list of sins that he's about to say next, one of which is homosexuality. And so we say that, Look, within this group in, in the Corinthian church, there were people who were liars, there were people who were drunkards, there were people who were homosexual. And guess what? The preaching of the gospel, they, that homosexuals were saved. And that homosexuals, the same way as us, we were liars, we were thieves, we were adulterers at heart, and all kinds of other sins. But as Christians, we don't go around telling people, well, I'm a lying Christian. I'm a thieving Christian, right? We're separated from our sin, which means that the homosexual who is saved has their mind changed towards homosexuality. They do not identify themselves as a homosexual Christian. They are a Christian. Those ways are gone. doesn't mean they can't fall into sin. It means that they have a correct understanding that that is an actual sin. What about transgenders? This is a big one today. And this is within the churches. That social justice woke train that's come in, I have a three-hour seminar on this, and it's devastating to churches. Critical race theory and intersectionality are not the worst parts of social justice. They're pretty easy to refute. A lot of secular people know how to refute it. It's what's coming in afterwards that's the problem. So how do we talk about transgenderism? Well, first of all, gender is, is indistinguishable from sex, inseparable from sex. You look at dictionaries 15 years ago and earlier, they all say that these two terms are synonyms. 15 years ago and earlier, psychology books called transgenderism a mental disorder. Homosexuality was too, by the way, years earlier. It was changed, these definitions were changed by culture. And so how do we talk about this? Well, biblically, first and foremost, that God made them male and female, period. But second, God in his design, males are X and a Y. Sperm and egg coming together. Females, X and an X coming together. Sperm and the egg. And as your cells replicate from the point of conception, the point of, of, of life, 
to the time that you're an adult, you have 60 trillion cells within you. 30 trillion are red blood cells and sexual gametes. They don't carry the XX and XY. The rest of those cells, 30 trillion of them, either say XX or XY. So it doesn't matter how much lipstick you put on, how many dresses you wear, and how much surgeries you get, your entire body still screams XX and XY. You cannot change what God has given. And so we can talk to people about this biblically and scientifically. And yet, there are objections out there. What about the people who are born with both sets of body parts? Kleinfelter syndrome. How about triple X syndrome? What about them? To which we respond, well, number one, these are the exception, not the rule. It's less than 1% of all births have these mutations. And number two, they're mistakes. They're not part of God's original creation. That was a perfect creation. These entered into the creation after Adam's sin. As our, as our bodies started to decay, our genomes started to decay, the world starts to decay, these are mistakes. This was not part of God's original creation. And the last challenge we're going to get to is this. Your God isn't real because, or most often stated today, God doesn't ban homosexuality because it's in the book of Leviticus. And you know, you eat pork, you eat bacon, you eat shellfish, you wear mixed fabrics, therefore homosexuality is fine. If you haven't heard this one yet, you're going to. It's very common. And the more that homosexuals polish up on their apologetic, the more you're going to hear this one. And so how do we deal with this? Well, without getting into a 30-minute lecture, Old Testament law is divided into several categories. R.C. Sproul calls it the tripartite. He says it's moral, ceremonial, civil. Um, Other theologians, especially Lutheran ones, break it up into just moral and ceremonial. And I know different guys are across the board on this. It doesn't matter how you break it up in terms of that. What it does matter is this. There are different types of law in the Old Testament. And we have to recognize that the moral law is written for all time. And the reason is because the purpose of the moral law is to point us to Christ because of our sin. So the moral law is is our mirror to our own sin, and we recognize we need Christ for that. That's for the unbeliever as well as the believer, the moral law. All time for us. The ceremonial law, on the other hand, is different. It was specific for a certain people in a certain time. It was written for the Israelites. And what was the purpose of the ceremonial law? It was to set apart Israel from the rest of the world. Why? Because this is who God chose, who the people group, the Messiah would come from. And when the Messiah came, did we need the ceremonial law anymore? No. We don't need to do sacrifices on altars anymore, despite Catholics doing a sacrifice every single week. We don't need to follow the other ceremonial law. Why? Because Christ came. As one funny theologian online puts it, we don't need to put up posters for the concert if the concert happened a week ago. He came, ceremonial law done. And so what the unbeliever is doing, typically what the homosexual is doing, is they're mixing ceremonial moral law. So on that, I know there's a ton of information. I know I went a few minutes past my, my allotted time, so I beg for forgiveness, Pastor Mark. I want to mention a couple of things. On the Origin of Kinds is a book I wrote 
five years ago. We have copies back here. It walks through biblical apologetics, biblical evangelism, presuppositional apologetics, creation apologetics. Only book of its kind that mixes all those together to allow us to think more clearly as we go out and evangelize. Great book for that. Um, since my ministry partner's not here, we do them on sale, so they're all 10 bucks every book we have. <laughs> my ministry partner's books... Uh, what do we believe? What do they believe? I see you guys got copies back there already. Great book. If you want a copy of your own, we have a couple of those here. A lot of you can read systematic theology books that are this big, which are forever to get through, or you can read one that's this big, which is just as good, and that's his What Do We Believe? Fantastic systematic theology. And then what do they believe? It goes into in-depth detail about what the cults believe. Last thing is, is if you want to learn how to teach better, speak better, do apologetics better, one of the ministries I'm involved in is Creation Training Initiative, creationtraining.org with, with Mike Riddle. We've got two really unique courses coming up this summer. We do them one every year, the other one every other year. The one that's every year is this, this June in Dallas at ICR, Institute for Creation Research. We've partnered with them as, as the teaching arm. We do a three-day uh, three teaching on Christian apologetics, some creation, some other things. It's a well-rounded apologetics curriculum with evangelism in it. If you're a Christian school teacher, you can get ASCI credit for going to this course. We also have a, our flagship five-day course. If one, if one of you want to learn, or some of you want to learn how to speak better, speak more clearly, whether it's in Bible study, Sunday school, or other areas, we have a five-day course that's coming up at Ridgecrest Conference Center this August. It costs normally $1,600 for us to put it on per person. It's five nights at a hotel. It's all your meals included, all your training and manuals included. Because of generous donors, the cost is $450 to attend this. All you do is have to get yourself there, and all the rest of the, everything else is covered while you're there. In this training, it's five days of training, plus there are several times you're going to get up and speak. You're going to prepare messages beforehand, five minutes in length, come in and talk, and we're going to coach you through how to become better speakers and teachers. There is no course on this planet like it. So on that, let's close in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for gathering us together in going through your word, Lord, and just understanding what apologetics is about. Apologetics is ultimately to glorify you, not ourselves. It's to glorify Christ, not glorify the apologist. Lord, I ask that you help us get our minds right in our apologetics and our evangelism and give us that fire to go out and evangelize in this lost and dying world. We see cults creeping in everywhere. We see that the cults are training their members to go out and teach their lies to, to the unsuspecting world. And Christian churches, by and large, have been sitting back doing nothing. Lord, I ask you give us that fire, as I know you've done already for this church, to go out and evangelize. I ask you give us that hunger even more to go do so. And that you bring unbelievers into the lives of those in this church, and maybe even bring them to church, Lord, that they can hear your saving message. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.